The reading this morning is taken from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. This is page 493. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Barney, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Barney, and Kenanai, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God, and the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Barney, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Bethahiah, and said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And then 25 verses of the history of Israel, and moving on to verse 20, 32. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land that you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave your forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I think it's going to help you today to have a Bible open. I'm going to try and use some slides on the screen as well, which may, uh, may help 
with uh, some of the passages, but please, if you do have a Bible, uh, if you have one of the church Bibles, it's page 493. Please don't feel embarrassed if you need to get up and grab a Bible now. Um, They're available uh, on those two sides of the church and at the back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the grace of Jesus. Please, would you open your word to our minds and our hearts, and would you help us to respond in loving obedience. Amen. So here is the issue for us today. When we've confessed Christ as Saviour and King, when we believe that he's Lord, that he's removed the barrier between God and humanity, that he's come to deal with our sin, how is it that even then, if you're like me, we continue to be stuck in patterns of sin that aren't worthy of God's people? We carry baggage, don't we? Experience that have shaped us and marred us, and sometimes we use those experience, experiences to educate us and to teach us as to how we should act. And in effect, what we do is we turn aside from God's law. So we let the society, we let our social media feed, we let our past experience shape us more than we let God's word shape us. We might be a redeemed people, saved and unchained by the love of God, but in practice we feel we are still slaves to sin, enslaved in the land of the free. We believe that Christ has died, that Christ was buried, that Christ rose again. We are an Easter people. We believe it, but practically, many of us are enslaved to something, some habit, some fear, some unforgiveness in a relationship, and we can't get out of it. Functionally, we believe the great truths of Scripture, and yet we're enslaved to the very things that we believe that Christ has delivered us from. If we're enslaved, then the Spirit of God shines his light on us, and the Word of God convicts us, not chasing us away, not pushing us away, but drawing us close. Are you enslaved in the land of the free? Addicted to something? Stuck in a cycle of abuse or unforgiveness? Enslaved by the grief of loss of something that you've been a part of in the past? Perhaps you're here today and keeping silent about the porn on your PC. About the relationship that nobody else knows anything about. Perhaps it's the continuing drive to be successful in the workplace, whatever the cost, or the careful nurturing and protection of your reputation, or the desire to control those around you, or your future. Slaves in the land of the free. Well, the Bible is an ancient book, but it's got a contemporary message And this is where we find Nehemiah and his friends back uh, all those years ago before before Jesus. We find him here in chapter 9. 
You'll recall the story up to this point that there's been devastation and shame because the city walls of Jerusalem have been in tatters. And Nehemiah responded to God's call and he led the people to rebuild the walls and they've now been completed. The wall that signified the boundaries of God's people, the respect for God, his sovereignty over his people. The walls that communicated to those around, here are God's people in God's place under God's protection. Now they're completed. But last week, if you were with us in chapter 8, we saw uh, the beginning of a greater rebuilding. Because if the, the walls were the external rebuilding of a city, last week we began to see the internal rebuilding of hearts. The rebuilding of a culture. And it began with reading God's word, hearing it, obeying it, remembering it. And today we see that as a response to that, the people are drawn to confession. This great prayer of confession. And I hope that what we see today is that confession is more, so much more than just saying sorry for one or two sins. Although, of course, it does include that. Confession is part of a culture war that is going on. It's about reclaiming the culture of our hearts. It's about resetting, if you like, the operating system of our lives so that the Israelites back then could live as people dedicated to God and you and I might live as people transformed by Jesus. You see, back then, God had given the Israelites good things. They had a shiny new wall. They had great houses. They had good jobs, probably happy families. And yet, they were still slaves. And I want to suggest that we, too, can be free and yet enslaved. Enslaved in the land of the free. We can have great buildings. We can put on great events. Things can look wonderful on the carefully manicured exterior of our lives. But here's the reality, verse 36. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our forefathers, our ancestors, so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us. They rule over us. We're in great distress. Verse 35, the exterior looks great. We may have the best job. We might have a great family. We might have uh, plentiful resources. We might have everything we want. But if our heart is far from the Lord, ultimately we have nothing. Here are the people enjoying God's great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land, enjoying the blessing of living in a wonderful city with great resources, a shiny place of worship with plentiful coffee after each service, but their hearts haven't changed. They carry the baggage of their former years, and even though their lives and hearts have been hard won, They live as slaves in the land of the free. Just take a moment to pause now. Are you living as a slave even though you're in the land of the free?
Have you accepted that Christ came for you? Journeyed to Calvary, was whipped and stripped and beaten and mocked and died for you to bring freedom and life. And yet, in reality, there are these patterns, these things that come up again and again that make us live as a slave in the land of the free. If that's you, do not forget that Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. And it's a message of comfort that we hear today. A message of challenge, but a message of comfort. How do they reclaim the operating systems of their hearts? Well, having read God's word, reminded themselves of God's law and his promises, they fall to their knees and confess their sins. Verse 1 of chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. They were serious about this. And they confessed their sin. So the question for us is, what is confession? I want to suggest today that confession is not just us saying sorry for our sins. Confession also includes a positive declaration of who God is. What kind of God is he? Again and again throughout this chapter, you will see, if you read it when you go home, that the focus is on you, God, and us, we, his people. So you, the God of heaven, you have done this. And God sits on his throne. He's been at work in the past. He's at work now. I want you to see some different aspects of God's character that I noticed as I read through this. First of all, he's sovereign and he's creator. Look at their first words. Stand up and praise the Lord who is from everlasting to everlasting. Stand up and praise. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. There are the people. We recognize that you're the Lord. You made us. You sustain us. Sometimes confession starts in standing and worshiping the Lord who created and who's sovereign over all, even when we don't feel like it. God is sovereign and creator. He's also the covenant God. Um, When John read, he said, These intervening verses of the history of Israel, they are. But they also tell us something of God. And I'm just going to point you to a few aspects of that. Verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abraham Abraham, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him. He is a covenant maker. Is that the God that you confess? The God of the covenant. 
Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is a unilateral declaration of kindness. God says, I'm going to be good to you. I'm going to shower my love on you no matter what. No matter what. And that's very different from a contract because a contract is bilateral. You do this and I'll do that. That's why marriage is a covenant, not a contract. I mean, I don't say to Carrie, my wife, I'll do the dishes if you will love me. No, marriage says, I'm going to love you come what may, in sickness and in health, whether we've got money or not, whether things are good or difficult. And the covenant of God is a bit like that. Well, actually, marriage is a bit like the covenant of God. God says, I'm going to be kind to my people. I'm going to love them come what may. That's the story of Scripture. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of grace. And it's a story that we're a part of, that we're loved no matter what. What does it look like for God to be a covenant-making God? Well, look at verse 9. You saw suffering. You heard the cry. You sent miraculous signs. You made a name for yourself. You divided the sea. You led them. You came down. You spoke. You gave regulations that are just and good. Do you see the covenant-making God is good and loving? You've unilaterally declared that you're going to love your people no matter what. And what did the people bring? What did they contribute? Well, verse 15. In their hunger you gave them bread. In their thirst you brought them water. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn to give them. The people brought three things. They brought hunger and thirst and homelessness. That's not a great offering, is it? And the God of heaven meets his people where they were and loves them and provides for them. He gives bread, he gives water, he gives them a land. Do you confess this God, the creator, the sovereign, and the covenant God? And what about God as loving, faithful father? Because the pattern of the people before God is always the same. We, we fail to listen, we don't remember And we don't remember what? Well, we don't remember that he's this kind of God. Verse 17, you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's the kind of father that we need. It's the relationship that we're wired for. We need a father who's going to stick around, who doesn't desert us, who overflows with love. So even in the lowest moments, for Israel that was the um, casting of an image of a calf. For us it might be something slightly different. In our lowest moments, we have a compassionate father who doesn't walk away. Even when we construct rival gods or we utter awful blasphemies. We have a father who is committed to covenant, committed to love us, no matter what. He's sovereign creator, he's he's a covenant God, and he's a loving father. Is that the father you come to when you confess? 
Is that the father you confess? But confession is not just a positive statement about who God is. It's also a stated declaration of where we've gone wrong. Did you see the cycle that the Israelites got into? In the face of this sovereign God, our creator who, who gave uh, this covenant with them, who, who's a loving father, what was their response? Well, verse 16, they became arrogant and stiff-necked. They didn't obey God's commands. They refused to listen. They failed to remember. They rebelled. And then verse 26, they were disobedient and, disobedient and rebelled. They put the law behind their backs. They killed the prophets. They committed blasphemies. They did evil in your sight. The cycle continues again and again. God is good and loving. He's bound by covenant. He's a loving father. And yet his people turn their backs. They hide the law. They pay no attention. They don't listen. They don't remember. And I know that's me. Does it sound familiar to you? Do you ever stop and think, how did I get here? How have I drifted so far? Well, let me play it through for you today. Because we let the culture of our time mold our thoughts so that when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to our time, when it comes to our money and possessions, when it comes to our eternal destiny, we let the culture of the day speak louder than the culture of Christ. Surely that teaching there in the Bible, that was for another era. God's commands set aside Put aside is just another opinionated voice for us to weigh up. And so we turn our backs on the law. We hide it behind our backs, not wanting to read it. And we won't kill the prophets because we live in civilized North Oxford, but we might shun them. We might tell them to stop speaking like this. And we're left enslaved in the land of the free. The God of heaven has called us here to establish the culture of our hearts. Not to establish the walls of a church or a building. And you see, even in the people's rebellion, God doesn't desert them. He doesn't give them over. This is the work of the compassionate Father who with tears running down his face lets us go to the destiny that we've chosen but makes a way for forgiveness and freedom through Christ. You see, if you don't know this, hear this loud and clear. God has done something about our sin. Jesus, his only and precious Son, has died in our place to take away our sin. It's one of the things we celebrate as we come together over communion. We are no longer slaves, but we're friends of God. We're dearly beloved. And in Christ, we have need of nothing. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And in him, we have life in all its fullness. In Christ, the pattern can break. In Christ, the punishment for sin has been taken, and the power of sin has been broken. God is forgiving and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
So it may take us some time to come back. But he will bring us back. In his compassion, he delivers his people time after time. If you know you have hidden his law behind your back, if you know you've turned your face from him, can I save you some years of pain and struggle? Why don't you commit to walking with him right now? And if you're in that place of slavery, habitual sin that keeps popping up, know that he might have let you go your own way, but he hasn't abandoned you, and he never will. And it may be that you're sitting there today thinking, well, this is the same old stuff that I'm hearing from the same old preacher. I'm no murderer, I'm no thief, I don't need to confess then can I challenge you with the warning that appears in this passage? Have you become stiff-necked? Are you refusing to listen? Because God in his kindness wants you to listen. It's about the culture of our hearts, the operating system of our lives being aligned with God, who's sovereign and creator, who's, who's loving father, who's committed to covenant, who's committed to you. You can't experience his embrace if you're walking off and walking away from him. Confession is stating who God is. And it's being honest and clear about those times where we've gone wrong. But confession also leads to action. At the end of chapter 9, we read these verses. In view of all this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, uh, they're affixing their seals to it. Confession to God led to action. It led to walking in a different way. Confession is never solely a declaration of our misdoings. If you read through chapter 10, which we haven't done, you'll see some of the things that might have been confessed by this people to God. Some of the ways that the people were stiff-necked and rebellious. I'm just going to touch on them briefly this morning because I think it lands where we've been. It makes it practical. Because for this people, their confession led to a new approach to relationships. Chapter 10, verse 30. You see, it mattered what God's people did with their bodies and who they spent time with in their relationships. That is one of the areas the people confessed. And they devote themselves to living in a new way. Relationships still matter. Secondly, they committed to a biblical approach to the use of time. So when their neighbors brought or sold on the Sabbath, they committed not to buy from them. How is God Lord over your time? Do you need to confess where he hasn't been sovereign over your time? And do you need to commit to action, to look over your diary, and to start again? 
And thirdly, they committed to a new approach to possessions. You see, commitment to the Sabbath meant a commitment to honoring the world that God had created for us. An understanding that all things come from God and so we give things back to him. He reshapes our finances and our giving. We give because God has given to us. These are the things that the Israelites confessed. And I think they may apply to us too. They do to me. How do we stop being slaves in the land of the free? How do we enable us to live lives to the full as redeemed children of God? Well, I want to suggest that we confess. We remember who God is. We worship him, sovereign and creator, the covenant God, the loving father. We confess our faults and our misdoings, our sins of commission and omission, knowing that Christ has died for our, in our place for our sin, that there's freedom for those who live in him, knowing that the grace of Christ is sufficient for every one of us here. And thirdly, we let our confession spill over into action because this is about the operating system of our lives, the culture of our hearts, and it plays out in how we live. All that is only possible through the love and the grace of Christ who died for you and for me that our sin may be forgiven and that we may know freedom and life in all its fullness. Life lived in the land of the free. Do you know it? Father, we confess that you are God, sovereign over us. A loving Father who has committed himself to us supremely in the person of Jesus. And we confess our sins. And we ask you to forgive us through the blood of Jesus. And we thank you that that blood is sufficient. And that in him there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And this day we commit ourselves to action. To turn again to you. Help us to live in the land of the free, we pray. Amen.